You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Yesterday, we talked a lot about the future of the middle class here in America. Today, we want to talk a little bit about its history. Southeast Michigan is the birthplace of the middle class in a lot of ways. Detroit Today producer Jake Neer recently spoke with Michigan State University economist Charles Ballard about Michigan's role in the rise of the middle class and what our economy might mean for its future. Michigan is, of course, not the only place where this happened, but the the phenomenon of People with only modest skills, often only a high school diploma or even less, being able to uh, earn their way to a a standard of living that we would now consider middle class, where they could own their own home, own a car, Um, that was really without precedent in history, and it became, became quite common in Michigan, especially southeast lower Michigan, with the auto industry and other manufacturing. So talk about the economic conditions that existed around this time of the emergence of the middle class, Uh, you know, focusing on on Michigan. What was it about what was happening here? And and I know you mentioned the auto industry, of course, but um, what what were the economic conditions at that moment when uh, we started seeing this this happen? Well, we're talking really about the first half of the 20th century uh, and on into the, uh, the 50s and 60s. There were a bunch of things that were contributing to it. Uh, one was it was a time of fast productivity growth uh, all across the country, but especially in manufacturing. That meant that if the workers could, could capture a portion of that productivity, there was the possibility that they would be able to raise their lifestyle. And how did they do that? Well, uh, one part of it is the labor unions. Uh, labor unions were quite weak in the United States before 1935 when the National Labor Relations Act was passed. Uh, but then, uh, with the change in law that made it easier for them to organize, their strength grew dramatically. And in Michigan, the poster child for that, of course, is the United Auto Workers Union, uh, which became not only economically but also politically an, an extremely potent force for several decades in the middle of the 20th century. There's also minimum wage legislation. Remember, the United States didn't have a minimum wage until 1938. Um, and, and another one that's, uh, that's worth mentioning is just the phenomenal effect of the Second World War. Um, the uh, Willow plant uh, went from, uh, it really quadrupled its, its productivity uh, as uh, Ford produced the B-24 bombers. And um, once the war was over, those productivity improvements, they didn't forget all the techniques that they had learned. Auto manufacturing became more efficient. um, And all of that contributed to uh, strength for the middle class. You mentioned that uh, before this sort of emergence in the 20th century of the middle class, there hadn't been something like that in, in history. This is sort of the first time that conditions sort of made this possible what was its ability to sort of having a have a lasting effect? Was this sort of something that that flashed, and then you know we're we're seeing sort of uh, you know the the physics of economics, if that's the thing, sort of peter out, or or is there is there something that that keeps it sustaining? Well, it, it, a whole bunch of forces, some of which I've already mentioned, contributed to this great equalization uh, in the early part of the 20th century, where the the share of income going to the top 1% plummeted, and the incomes of ordinary people went way up. 
we've already talked about labor unions and minimum wage. Another one was the phenomenal increase in education, where more and more people were able to complete high school. Remember, 100 years ago, uh, fewer than one out of every five kids of the, of the age, in fact, closer to 10%, were completing high school. And so many of those had really few opportunities other than to be a laborer. Um, then a big part of it was the National War Labor Board. Uh, which from 1942 to 1945, we had economy-wide price controls to try to tamp down inflation during the Second World War. Well, what that meant was that if an employer wanted to uh, raise somebody's wage, uh, they had to appeal to the board, and the board routinely said yes if they wanted to raise the wages of low-wage workers. And if you wanted to raise the wages of your high-wage workers, they said no. And that led to what economists call the Great Compression of wages and earnings. And then you asked, how did it stay? How did it sustain itself for another 30 years? As you know, it's turned around since the 70s. But really, we maintained a strong middle class and good wage growth for ordinary people, not just people who work, work for Wall Street and, and other folks and CEOs. Good wage growth for all those folks, uh, really until the 70s. And I think if you had asked a lot of economists in 1946 what's going to happen, they would have said, well, the wages would go back down. But the institutions that had been put in place in the early 20th century had some institutional momentum. The minimum wage was still there. In fact, it was raised. Uh, its real inflation-adjusted value continued to go up until 1968. Now it's lower than it was. Unions maintained their strength for another couple of decades. The increases in education continued. Uh, and I think there's another thing that is very difficult to quantify, but I think it's very real, is solidarity. I have the sense that, that there were these conversations in the kitchen, in the dining room of, a, of an executive, and the executive says, I want to cut the workers' wages. And the, and the wife looks him in the eye and says, your workers built the bombers and made the rifles and the tanks that won the war. Don't you even think about cutting their wages? Mm-hmm. And um, and a sort of a, a sense of social justice, um, a social norm that said that CEOs should only have wages more like 20 times the wages of their average worker. Uh, those things maintained themselves for another 30 years after the war, and then they began to to fall apart. And is there something that sort of defined them falling apart? Is there something that that happened, or is it a number of factors? What were they? It's a whole bunch of things, one of which was that the the rich got organized. Various uh, attempts at funneling campaign contributions, uh, lots of think think tanks to try to support um, the ideas that would be associated with tearing down these institutions. That grew. Uh, my view, and this is controversial, and I'll say that at the outright, my view is that the thing that was more important than anything else was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because that was what turned the South toward the Republican Party. And that was, in many cases, enough to strengthen the hand of conservatives who were comfortable with a more unequal distribution of income. So, so to be clear on that point, that it wasn't a direct consequence, but sort of an unintended con- consequence. Uh, definitely an unintended. Uh, I think the, the, the people who voted for the Civil Rights Act did not foresee 
It, well, some of them did. I mean, Lyndon Johnson is famous for saying that he understood that by signing this law, he would lose the South for the Democratic Party. And that's eventually what happened. It's a remarkable thing that in the Roosevelt administration, it was possible to pass amazingly progressive pieces of legislation, Fair Labor Standards Act, National Labor Relations Act, Social Security Act, banking regulation, all of these things that are pretty progressive by American standards. How did they get through the Congress, which was dominated by Southern racists? Because most of the committee chairmen were white uh, from states where blacks were not allowed to vote, and it was important for them to be in favor of white supremacy. How did you get those things through Congress? The, the way they got through Congress was that Roosevelt and his allies left the blacks out. In many cases, um, agricultural laborers, which meant a lot of black men, and domestic servants, which meant a lot of black women, were uh, exempted from these pieces of legislation. And so it was possible for Americans to be very progressive as long as blacks were left out. Once blacks were explicitly included as they were after the legislation of the 60s, then you had a portion of the white electorate, not all by any means, but a portion for whom that was a taboo that couldn't be broken. And then, as you know, the Republican Party became sort of the anti-civil rights party, and, and has that has maintained a part of its strength to this day. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and we're speaking right now with MSU economist Charlie Ballard, who's talking to us about the history of the middle class here in Michigan, what it looked like when it emerged here in Michigan, sort of defining the middle class for the rest of the country, and what Michigan's middle class might mean and what our economy might mean for the middle class uh, going forward. Now, when we're talking about inclusiveness and and people of color at the same time, I mean, uh, talk directly about how people of color have been included in the middle class or excluded over the years. That's certainly something that uh, played a a big role here in Michigan as well. Right. You know, 100 years ago, Michigan had uh, fewer than 10,000 African-Americans. Now we have 1.4 million. So that's a big change. Who are they? They're the descendants of people who moved here from the South, largely to get factory jobs in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now, at first, um, blacks were uh, had some trouble integrating into the labor unions, but eventually they succeeded. Um, now, it's, it's ironic that many blacks left the South when agricultural jobs were drying up um, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and then they came to Michigan, and many of them experienced a few decades of uh, prosperity before manufacturing started to dry up. And in fact, uh, one really ironic thing that I've found in looking at the data is that African Americans have lost ground relative to their white counterparts in the upper Midwest in the last 40 years, uh, in large part because of the uh, uh, the problems in manufacturing. You sort of touched on this, uh, that, that over the course of history, when we have one economy sort of displace another economy, when you had the uh, industrial economy sort of displace the agricultural economy in the United States, there was something to sort of replace it. You know what I'm saying? That you Right. Know, but now it seems like the question is, now that we're moving into the information economy or whatever you want to call it, could new middle-class jobs replace the old ones? What is your view on that? 
Well, that's probably the most controversial question that economists face nowadays, and it's one that's a, a subject of tremendous amount of study. Um, I don't think the answer is clear. I think uh, in terms of looking forward, looking back, if we look at back at the last 30, 35, 40 years, there has definitely been a hollowing out with lots of job growth in the service sector, much of it low paying, although not all of it. After all, doctors and lawyers are in the service sector. Um, and uh, a lot of growth at the very top, uh, um, you know, um, people who have PhDs or MBAs or medical degrees uh, have done very, very well. And CEOs and financiers have done very, very well. But that middle group, um, the, the median family, uh, has not done that well. And that's uh, at least partly because of uh, the lack of uh, the loss of some of the manufacturing jobs. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I wish I knew mm-hmm. what it will look like in 20 years. I don't really see anything that's going to dramatically turn this around and provide millions of middle-class jobs. Uh, if I were to look for policies to try to strengthen the middle class, I would certainly look for uh, a lot of support for education, huge support for education. Try to get people the skills that they need to compete in the labor force, and you got to pay for that, and I would do it through progressive taxation. Um, I uh, hope that we can regulate the financial services sector sufficiently that we don't have another financial crisis like we had eight years ago. So there's a, there's a mix of things that, that I think would, would make sense uh, that might help, but there's, there's really no guarantee for the strength of the middle class going forward. I, I think a lot of it, it does have to do with uh, politics. I mean, roughly speaking, the political system voted for policies that were very beneficial to the bottom 99% for the first two-thirds of the 20th century. And since then, many of our policies have tilted quite strongly toward the top uh, 1% and with predictable consequences. So we started the conversation off talking about how Michigan sort of uh, drew the picture for the the American middle class, that it was sort of where the middle class started. Uh, I'm hoping maybe you can uh, talk about currently um, how how what does M- Michigan now tell us about the current state of the middle class and where it might be going? Well, you know, the, the 21st century has been a tough one for Michigan. Our economy boomed in the 90s because manufacturing was doing very well. But then uh, since 2000, uh, you know, we now have fewer jobs in Michigan than we had in 2000. We lost 860,000 jobs from tw- 2000 to 2010. We've gained more than a half a million of those back. So, you know, there, a lot of this is a the glass is at least partly full and at least partly empty. Um, But our incomes have gone down. We went from being an above-average income state back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s to being a below-average income state. We're 33rd now among the states. You know, as a state that has traditionally had uh, less than the national average in terms of educational attainment, that didn't hurt us at the heyday of manufacturing 50, 60 years ago, but it does now. Um, and uh, I return to education as one of the 
policies that I think would be most important to try to uh, build a, a better future uh, for Michigan. Um, now, an, another thing, of course, that makes a difference, not just for Michigan, but everywhere, if you've got full employment, if you can avoid recessions, especially deep ones like the ones we had in the previous decade, that helps because the data show that 2015 was the best year of this century. Um, when we get the data for 2016, I think it'll be almost as good. And we may finally be getting to the point where the median household is earning more than it made back in 1999. Uh, that would be really good news, and that would help uh, – I think everybody, but especially those in the middle of the income distribution. That was Michigan State University economist Charles Ballard speaking with Detroit Today producer Jake Neer about Michigan's role in the emergence of the middle class. All right, up next, a University of Michigan professor won the Pulitzer Prize for History this week. We'll hear from Heather Ann Thompson next. Next. 